morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 140, that'll be our sermon text for this morning, Psalm 140. As uh, some of you know, we've been working through the Psalms for a number of months now. Uh, We have uh, two final sermons in our Psalm series. This morning we'll look at Psalm 140. Next week we will look at Psalm 150. Um, Before we read that together, though, let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we come. Uh, We come to you now. We come to hear your voice. We come to hear you speaking to us in the scriptures. Uh, Father, we come uh, praying that you would humble our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, even ears to hear hard things, uh, that you would give us an openness and a wisdom uh, to discern what is true, what is good, what is right. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would speak this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 140. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Selah. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares for me. Selah. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. I think sometimes we don't know what to do when we come to psalms like this. David spends five or more verses describing how evil his enemies are. Nowadays, we're more likely to say that they were misled or misunderstood or their parents didn't love them. They're trying to prop up fragile egos or they're running from past hurts. David simply says they're evil and violent and wicked men. It makes us, I think, a bit uncomfortable. It makes me a bit uncomfortable. I mean, do we really want to point the finger and say, there, that is the evil, wicked, violent man that David is talking about? Now, I'm not sure David was talking about specific people in his day, but if there were evil men in his day, surely there are evil men in ours as well. Who would you point to? Don't answer that. (laughs) Not out loud, anyway. 
And David spends another four verses asking God to frustrate and judge those evil, wicked men. Not have mercy on them, not forgive them, not give them another chance, but bring down their sins upon their heads. As they often did, let it be done to them. It sounds unchristian, we think, or at least uncivilized. There are different ways of looking at a psalm like this, and one would be with impassioned sympathy for the persecuted and the oppressed, like David. We have looked at some psalms from that perspective. Another is maybe the the more analytical argument for the truth of the propositions of this psalm. Uh, my, My tendency, I think, is to do the former, to sympathize, but this morning I want to attempt to do the second. I want to, I want to look at how the truths of Psalm 140 bump up against and at moments maybe intersect with the spirit of our age. All the while, of course, keeping an eye on those who suffer injustice as we go. And I would ask that uh, you, you not walk out in the middle of the sermon this morning. Uh, I want you to recognize, of course, that, that I can't say everything about this difficult topic. And at points it will be hard. But that's okay. Sometimes we need to be challenged by God's Word, and that's good. So there are three things that I want to point out this morning. They, they actually lie, in one sense, just below the surface of the text. That is, they are the necessary implications of what David says. They are the assumptions that lie behind his statements, the principles uh, that underlie them. And, and David is demonstrating them by, uh, by illustration, as it were. And uh, I, I have to point out, I, I messed up this week. I, uh, I sent Joe the outline, and then I changed it, and then I never sent him the changed outline. So the outline is not in the bulletin on the back. Uh, that's an outline for another sermon that I'll never preach. Uh, but um, the outline for this sermon is these three points. One, evil is real. Two, justice is good. And three, God is merciful. It may seem silly to argue for those three things. I mean, they seem so simple, right? So obvious. Evil is real, justice is good, and God is merciful. But I I think it's pretty important to talk about those three things, and uh, it, it seems even that those three things are almost passe today. Uh, they're often seen as, as childish notions or outdated uh, thoughts, regressive, maybe even backward. Christians, I think, at times are a bit embarrassed to admit them, but in reality, they are central and essential to the gospel, and so we'll look at them one at a time. Uh, first, evil is real. Notice what David says in the first five verses again. O Lord, that's Psalm 141. Psalm 140. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of asps. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares 
for me. What was David's situation? Well, he had enemies. Enemies who wanted to take him down. They were evil and violent. The evil started in their hearts, he says, and then moved out as they stirred up trouble wherever they went. Like snakes, they used their mouths as weapons, gossip, slander, harsh words, scheming, conspiring. They wanted to trap David, to trip him up, and so they plotted ways to catch him like an animal, hiding traps, spreading nets, setting snares. Maybe it's a bit hard for you to imagine such a situation. Again, I think our tendency today is uh, to make excuses for people when they do such things. I mean, sure, we will admit that Hitler was evil, and there may be a few others who are as bad as him, but nobody we actually know. We're all good people. We're comfortable with the idea that, that systemic evil is real, but we're not so comfortable with the idea that personal evil is real. That people we know might well be evil, wicked, violent, as David says. It's hard for us to imagine a situation as bad as David's. Unless you've been there. Unless you've been sinned against, seriously sinned against. Unless you've been the victim of physical, verbal, or sexual abuse. Unless you've had someone systematically and purposefully ruin your reputation. Unless you've had someone rob your home or vandalize your most treasured possessions. Unless you've had someone scheme and plot and plan for your demise. Unless you feel vulnerable and violated. And suddenly David's words have teeth. It's true that our battle is not with flesh and blood, Scripture says, but with the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But sometimes people are on Satan's side. No? I think we're too timid to admit this. Even the way I just said that. But you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, says people, some people, are children of their father, the devil, and their will is to do their father's desires. Those are strong words. So who needs to hear this more than anybody, this idea that evil is real? Well, oppressed people. People who have been victims of, again, physical, verbal, sexual abuse. Those who have been kicked in the face all their lives. They need to know that what was done to them was evil. But also everyone, right, who who has ever been sinned against. It ought not to have been so. God hates the the violence, the gossip, the reputation homicide. God hates meanness on the playground and the dog-eat-dog culture at work. And friends, it's not just the actions that are evil. Scripture says that evil actions come from an evil heart. It's the people who do those actions. Now again, many people today disagree with this. Uh, One writer in an interview about her book, her book which is titled Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, she says this, people have often called politicians evil, which she says is a, a catastrophic argument because it elevates them beyond the realm of humans, which almost deifies them in a weird way and shuts down meaningful conversation. So if we really think someone is doing terrible things, 
or has the capacity to do them, to call them evil is to shut down the conversation and is the worst thing we can do. Average people, she says, could become like Adolf Eichmann, one of the organizers of the Final Solution, who famously argued that he was just following orders when he, was, when he sent Jews to their deaths. But it is unlikely, she says. We think of those who murder others or help in the murder of others as non-human, and that's simply not the case. In fact, the people who end up being capable of doing great harm are much, much more like you and I than you might think. That's a large premise of the book, she says. She goes on to say, we all have the fundamental tendencies in us to create harm, but it's how those manifest in our daily behavior and how we control them that's an individual thing. Unlike in films, there's no such thing as good versus evil in real human beings. Her conclusion is, I think the word evil is lazy and dehumanizing. I started writing knowing I had a problem with the concept of evil and calling people monsters. Now I feel entirely confident that we have so much in common and that all of us could be this thing called evil. It's a positive thing for ourselves and humanity that everyone has a dark side as it can make us empathize with people such as criminals whom we often write off and dehumanize. Now, there is something profoundly wrong in what she says, and yet also something profoundly right. She says to call someone evil is to dehumanize them, which I think is both true and false. It's true in the sense that being evil, being evil is dehumanizing. We were made in the image of God. To to do evil, then, is to be inhuman. It is to reject our God-given humanity. And yet, to say that evil is to dehumanize people is also false, because all humanity has turned away from God and reflects less of his image in the world than we were intended to reflect. And this is where, again, we can actually agree with her. She says, we all have the tendencies in us to create harm. And all of us could be this thing called evil. Uh, Paul the Apostle would agree. Uh, In fact, he uses this very psalm, Psalm 140, to demonstrate that. He says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, none is righteous. No, not one. Not, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And he goes on. Here Paul strings together a series of quotes from the Psalms and the book of Proverbs. And one of those comes from Psalm 140, verse 3. The venom of asps is under their lips. And Paul's point is that none of us are righteous. At some level, all of us are evil. Not as evil as we could be, I hope, but evil through and through. And what's the point? Even as we want to insist that, yes, actually, evil is real. Evil people are real. That's not being judgmental. There is a plank in our own eye, as Jesus would say. If we want to be truly honest, we must deal with the evil in our own hearts before we point out the evil in others' actions. The proper solve, though, when we realize all of us could be this thing called evil, is not to deny the disease, but to recognize that we are all infected. And yes, that should make us empathize. 
but not merely empathize, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Uh, we need, need to say one more, though, first about one more thing about the reality of evil. As you read through David's descriptions of his enemies, I want you to notice everything he says is actually said of Satan somewhere in Scripture. Is Satan violent? He was a murderer from the beginning, says Jesus. Is his tongue like that of a serpent's? Are his words venomous and destructive? He is a liar and the father of lies. His words are like flaming darts, as is implied of David's enemies in verses 9 and 10. Does he seek to trip and trap and snare? Multiple times, Paul warns against the snares of the evil one. And so, however much we want to get others, and especially ourselves, off the hook, there is most definitely an evil one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. His goal is our destruction, Scripture says. He's a, he is a thief whom Jesus says comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Evil, pure, and simple. He is real and he is personal. And so first, evil is real. Maybe you have experienced that in your own life. Maybe you, like David, have been verbally attacked or plotted against or hunted down. What do you do with that? Well, that brings us to our second point. Justice is good. Our our culture is fine with talking about social justice, and the Bible is all for restorative justice done well, as seen in the Old Testament law. But justice is bigger than either of those things. A simple definition of justice is where everyone gets what they deserve, good or bad, uh, where all wrongs are put right. In Scripture, often this righting of wrongs means turning the tables, where the oppressors get a taste of their own medicine. And so Solomon says to someone who opposed his father David's reign, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David, my father, so the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. Or Ezekiel says to the Edomites, As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate. Or Habakkuk says to the Chaldeans, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Or Obadiah simply says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is a kind of uh, uh, reverse or or, uh, complement to the golden rule, isn't it? The golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is like the the golden rule of justice, as you have done to others, so it will be done to you. It's not karma, by the way, because it's not impersonal. God himself will bring the wickedness of the wicked upon their head. That's what we find in this psalm, right? That there is this emphasis on a just judgment or a fitting punishment. So again, verses 9 through 11. As for the head of those who surround me, Let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. 
What does David want there? What is he asking for? He wants God to take the wickedness of his enemies, uh, those who, who, who's, who's, whose lips lied and uh, brought trouble upon David, those who sought to trap him in a pit, in a snare. He wants God to take the wickedness of his enemies and turn it back on their own heads. David prays another time. Uh, he was being unjustly pursued in Psalm 109. He says, He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. I know we tend to be uncomfortable with this language, Christian and non-Christian alike. I mean, we want David to forgive and forget, right? Let it go, David. Bitterness isn't good for you. And we'll come back to letting it go, of course. But for the moment, let me just defend justice as justice, even the pursuit of justice. Remember David's situation. He was being pursued, persecuted, attacked, hunted. David is actually a victim here. And let me say the true victim has every right to say, God, God, judge my oppressor. God, make this right. God, free me from the violence of those who surround me. Notice there are, there are really two cries here of David. One is for God to deliver David from evil plots. And the second is for those who plot evil to have it come back upon them. Both requests are good. As Christians, we have to say that because otherwise we're saying that hell is bad. Hell is when the deeds of the evil come home to roost. In fact, praying thy kingdom come in part means praying for the judgment of the wicked because that is what will happen when God's kingdom comes in fullness. Revelation says when King Jesus comes, he will strike down the nations with the sword of his mouth. Now we can be embarrassed about that. We can try to avoid talking about it. Or we can say that justice is good. God will judge the wicked on the last day. And what a comfort that is to the persecuted and the oppressed here and now. Especially those who, who seek justice but never find it. To say that God will put things right on the last day. We will not be embarrassed of God on that day. We will not be ashamed of our Lord. But we will worship him for his wisdom and his justness. Again, even gentle Jesus, meek and mild, says of some, they will be cast in the lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels. And he is the one who will send them there. Jesus said that in Matthew 25. I don't think he said that with his eyes toward the ground, hoping no one would notice. He said it as a warning. But he said it boldly because it was true. God will put things right on the last day. That means judging the wicked and causing their wickedness to come back upon them. We ought not be ashamed of that, but worship our God. Now again, don't walk out at this point. That's not the whole story. But it is part of the story. We don't have to understand it. I won't even push you to like it at this point. That we should grow to like it. And we need to believe it and trust in our Father. And we can do that 
because our Father is merciful. Which brings us to our last point. Evil is real. Justice is good. Point three, God is merciful. David looked to God as a God of mercy. Verse six, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. There is a tension here, I think, that is found throughout the Old Testament between justice and mercy. On the one hand, David wanted mercy from the Lord for himself. He was hunted, persecuted, oppressed. He asked for mercy for God to look on his humble position and help. But on the other hand, David asks for justice for his oppressors. They were evil and wicked and violent, and he asked that their wickedness come back upon their heads. Now, on the one hand, this simply highlights the personal connection between David and his God. Right? Notice in verse 6, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Verse 7, O Lord, my God. See, the Lord is his God, and he can therefore look to the Lord for help. He can confidently expect the Lord to help him because the Lord is his Lord. The problem comes, of course, when God's people are evil and wicked and violent. Then what? Will God show mercy because they are his people, or will he bring justice because they have done wrong? And there is, I think, a real tension throughout the Old Testament. These truths, by the way, they're not contradictory, but they feel like it. And so we have these two strong themes, mercy and justice. And these two themes seem to work against one another. Israel wants justice for their oppressors, but mercy for themselves. And how do the two fit together? Well, on the one hand, as the story unfolds, as you read through the Old Testament, God does bring justice, but not just to Israel's enemies. It falls on Israel as well. How can God be just then and at the same time be merciful to his people? Well, that tension is, of course, resolved only in the work of Christ. Justice and mercy meet in the cross. Jesus offers up his life as a substitute sacrifice bearing sin in our place. He bears the brunt of God's justice for us. Our wickedness comes back on his head. Subsequently, his righteousness is attributed to us. Because we are united to Christ in a covenant union, a marriage like joining together, we are seen before the Father as, as, as one unit, our sin borne by him and his righteousness attributed to us. And this paves the way for God to be, as Paul put it, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can justly declare us righteous, not because we are in ourselves, we know better, but because we being in Christ are righteous in him. He does that, though, not because we deserve it, but according to his mercy. Mercy and justice meet in the person of Jesus. And so God executes justice through Christ by laying the sins of his people on Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But God also executes justice for Christ, the only truly innocent victim, by raising him from the dead and giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. 
because Jesus was faithful even unto death. This is how we know that God cares for the righteous in their affliction, even when it gets as bad as it can get, even when death itself comes upon us. God the Father cared for Jesus, and he will care for those who are in Jesus. God raised him from the dead, and Scripture tells us that God will raise his people from the dead as well on the last day. So Christ comes, he shares in our affliction, and Christ is raised out of his affliction. In that event, Christ saves us from our sins and gives us the promise of saving us out of our afflictions and troubles on the last day. Again, in Jesus, justice and mercy meet. But you might say, well, precisely because of that point, right? Because we have received mercy in Christ, we ought to then show mercy to our enemies, which is true. But then how does that relate to seeking justice? We just talked about that a moment ago. Besides, you might think, okay, Pastor Luke, right? Don't you remember Matthew 5? Where Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Or just a few verses later, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Doesn't this undercut the goodness of justice? Or at least prioritize mercy over justice so that justice is practically set aside? Well, a couple of important things that we need to say here. One is that Jesus actually is not denying that eye for eye is a just standard. In fact, the point of eye for eye, if you go back and read in the Old Testament where that's found, the point of that eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was to limit punishment to what was fitting. We would say today the punishment should fit the crime. That's what that means. This, again, is kind of the, the, the golden rule of justice, if I can put it like that. And so Jesus is not rejecting eye for eye as wrong or unjust, but he is qualifying its application. He was saying that this Old Testament standard, which, by the way, was for civil leaders administering public sentences, should not be applied to personal vendettas. Eye for eye is not the same as tit for tat. As individuals, we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But the court's job is to administer justice. And again, we live in this tension. That said, two points are in order. First, future justice, this idea that God will put things right on the last day, actually is what enables present mercy. We don't like the idea of seeking just punishment. In our minds, right, seeking justice is the same as revenge always. And, of course, Jesus calls us to forgive, after all. But it is just the justice of Jesus that allows us to forgive and overlook wrong in the present. Jesus doesn't call us to want to see just injustice stand. He's not saying, don't worry about justice, it's okay, we'll just let it go. But he promises to right all wrongs in the end. And we should long for that. See, sometimes we take Jesus' words about loving our enemies to mean seeking justice in any retributive sense is wrong. But that's not so. God will judge. He will repay. 
Is it wrong to want to see God display his glory in judgment? Scary, but I don't think so. So what does Romans 12 mean? When it says, bless those who persecute you. When it says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does it mean to love our enemies, even while longing for justice? Well, it means when it comes to justice, first, it's not my job. Vengeance, God says, is mine. I will repay. David, actually like Paul, was leaving the execution of justice in God's hands. Paul knew that vengeance belonged to God. David asked for God to execute the same. That's what David is saying. God, you do this. Longing for justice is is not the same as being bloodthirsty for vengeance. In fact, it means leaving justice in the Father's hands. God, this is yours to deal with, not mine. We can lay aside the pursuit of vengeance for personal wrongs because we know the Father will right all wrongs on the last day. Second, when it comes to justice, it's not the time. God will bring justice. He will repay. He has promised. He will do it. Not one sin will go unpunished in the end, but today is the day of salvation. And it is a good thing, too, because I need mercy just as much as my enemy. We're all cut from the same cloth, right? Fallen humanity. True, we we might not be where they are, but we could be. We have it in us, as it were, to be what they are. We do not murder, but we hate. We do not commit adultery, but we lust. We do not steal, but we covet. We may not lie, but we fudge the truth an awful lot and practice selective truth-telling to fit our agenda and protect our own reputation. Judgment is not my job, and it's not the time. My job is to demonstrate God's mercy while awaiting His justice. And the assurance of coming justice enables me to be free from that concern in order to focus on my job, showing mercy and loving my enemies and praying for my persecutors. Future justice actually enables present mercy. Second, and finally, future justice also allows present confidence. We need to note this confidence in David's voice. We need to note it for those of you who are suffering right now, for those of you who have enemies, whether the flesh and blood type or the spiritual powers in the heavenly places type. David is confident in his God. Look again at verses 6 through 8. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot or they will be exalted. Hear his confidence. Again, in verses 12 through 13, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. David is confident. He knows his God will bring justice on the last day. And of course, the truth of the matter is we can have even more confidence. We can have more confidence because of the resurrection. 
God saved Jesus from his trouble. and He will save all who belong to Jesus just the same. Whatever trouble or trial you are undergoing, God is able to save you out of it. He might not save you yet. It might get worse. But he will maintain the cause of his children. And with David, one day you will look back and give thanks to his name for the way he brought you through as you dwell in his presence and see his face. Let's pray. Our Father, we come again to hear from you, as we said. And we want to be taught from you. We want to be challenged by you. We want you to teach us. Teach us truths about justice. Teach us truths about mercy. Help us to understand mercy and justice and to show mercy even as we await justice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.